welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Not only are we um, very lucky to have two leading journalists in the China Watching and U.S. watching space, um, but they're also um, leading, I think, voices online and kind of in this space about the ways in which journalism is coming under fire in the U.S.-China relationship. And um, on behalf of myself and the whole National Committee and YCP team, we're so excited to be able to um, speak to you guys and go behind the byline and to hear a little bit more from the kind of personal side of what exactly it's been like for the past few months reporting um, as a Chinese journalist reporting in the U.S. and vice versa. Um, Amy is the China correspondent for the New York Times, and um, Olivia Chijang is the chief correspondent for Saixian Media here in Beijing, D.C. I just wanted to kind of first turn the floor over to the two of you to talk a little bit about um, what exactly brought you to the field of journalism, um, how you got here, and um, I guess what your current role looks like. So Amy, can I turn to you first? Sure. Um, thank you so much to all of you for being here today, and thanks um, for allowing me to share some thoughts on this topic. Uh, I definitely am one of those people who fell into journalism. I think I was um, interested in China first. My parents, my family is all from China. Most of my family is still in China, and um, I grew up in California in the Bay Area and sort of spent summers going back when I was a kid um, to where my dad's family is from and going into the village. And I think that it was just this crazy uh, contrast to go from like suburban California to like village life, um, early 90s China. Um, I still have nightmares about the outhouse. But, um, you know, I just, from there on, I think it was a lot, like a lot of ABCs. I just had this sort of interest in my, you know, learning more about family history and background. And so that's how I sort of had this interest in China over the years. And when I went to college, I also studied Chinese politics. I had, um, I was lucky that I went to UC Berkeley and there were some amazing professors on um, the faculty there who focused on China. And I always got to spend a lot of time with all of them. And I continued that into my master's. Um, and in the summer between my um, fresh, my two years at Oxford, I did a summer at um, Baidu. And uh, I, many, many of you are probably familiar with Kaiser Kuo. And I did an internship with him. And I mean, I thought I was going to you know, unmask Chinese censorship. It definitely was not the case there. But it did introduce me to journalism. And through Kaiser, I did met, meet a lot of people. And so um, you know, I spent a lot of nights in Beijing just hanging around the journalism crowd. And uh, I just sort of fell into it. I met um, Ed Wong, who uh, is now a DC correspondent. Um, and you know, he sort of just pulled me in. And I started working for the New York Times and the Beijing Bureau. And, I guess the rest is history. So I just sort of started writing from there and you know, started out doing some small kind of blog items. And now um, I have a kind of more general focus on China. Um, yeah, uh, so yeah, thank you so much for inviting me and uh, hear uh, my side of stories. So 
I think I didn't, I was kind of different. I, I wasn't that kind of person. Like I knew I'm so into journalism. Like when I was a kid, I'm, I wasn't like that. I think I uh, I didn't know, like I want, I have this passion in journalism until I was in graduate school, actually. Um, I was studying at Communication University of China and then I got this exchange uh, student, like a program opportunity to study in Australia where I, I took, you can take four courses maximum and I took all journalism related, say like broadcaster journalism, multimedia journalism and a journalism internship. So I just uh, felt like, okay, that's, you know, the nonfiction journalistic reporting is where my passion was. And I also really enjoyed living abroad uh, to have like that unique perspective. And I decided that I wanted to live abroad longer uh, than just the four months, so I apply schools and I end up go to the UK. Uh, even though that's not a journalist, journalism degree, but um, when I get back, I still try. I knew I want to do journalism. I end up like you know working for Taishin. It's my first full time job. Uh, it's a really great opportunity. And I remember like before I got this job at Taishin, and I was you know when you do interviews and the people ask you where do you see yourself in five years. And I would say like, oh, I want to be an international correspondent. At that time, I, I think when I said that, I don't think that will become true anytime soon. But it just the uh, two times after, I, uh, two years after I worked for Taishin, and I was so fortunate enough, you know, to be the U.S. correspondent for Taishin, and now it's two and a half years past, and I'm really um, grateful for what you know my past experiences, and never regret any minute of it. Great. Um, well, maybe we can fast forward a little bit. It's really interesting to hear how you both came into the field. Amy, maybe more through the China um, like area focus lens and Olivia through the, the correspondent um, journalism background. Um, either, you know, both paths have led you to a place where you're now, you know, um, practicing journalists and under a very different set of circumstances than um, even a year ago you might have faced in your current role. So, um, can you kind of walk us through each of you from like February to May, kind of what's been going on for you? Um, Amy, I know you've been, you were in Wuhan and I think everyone now knows um, that, you know, the New York Times journalists were expelled from China right, uh, right around that same time. So can you kind of walk us through what exactly like that period looked like for you and the impact of the um, like policies from the, from the Chinese government had upon you and your colleagues? Yeah, um, and I went, I basically uh, went to Wuhan at the end of January and I was there for a while and reporting on the ground there and it was an incredible trip and I had no idea then that it was going to be my last reporting trip in China. Um, I evacuated with the State Department on their last flight out to San Diego in mid-February and um, we went to the Miramar Air Base in San Diego. They actually didn't tell us where we were going until um, like when we almost landed so we, we thought we could possibly be going. We just knew we were going to the U.S. and at the time I remember feeling so relieved because um, I was like, ah, oh, I'm safe in the U.S. It's so great here. Um, and, but then also having a red flag, you know, because they were like, you don't have to wear masks in your quarantine, you guys can hang out with each other. And two people had tested positive and I was like, this, sounds, this seems a little weird. So I was there for two weeks doing the quarantine and then I basically flew straight back to Beijing just to continue working. And um, basically, you know, we've always all kind of known in, 
it's not the first time that journalists have been expelled um, from China. We saw in February that there were three Wall Street Journal um, journalists expelled. And so, you know, we've all kind of known that it was possible, but I think, you know, it was definitely still a shock. Um, I remember it was in March and um, the night, the day before I had found out in the middle of the night uh, that Idris Elba had tested positive for the virus. And so I woke up my fiance and I was like, oh my God, Idris Elba just tested positive. He's like, never wake me up for that again. <laughs> um, and then the next day I was like, I also had woken up in the middle of the night, was looking at my phone and around two or 3 a.m. I started getting messages. I saw that I had a bunch of like frantic messages from people, including some of my colleagues. And the order had just come out um, basically saying that we had been expelled from China and we had, you know, a few, only a few days to get out. And um, I was like, should I wake him up? I was like, I think, I think this, I think this counts, right? So I woke him up and I was like, and he's like, what? <laughs> so yeah, uh, that was in mid-March. And um, since then, it's just been sort of, you know, very already been, what was already a very hectic year has just continued to be a very hectic year. Um, I basically left within 10 days to go to the U.S. I mean, it was very stressful because as we all know, you know, this has been happening now for months now. It's just been so difficult to get flights to go places. I had at one point, I think, three tickets booked to like Japan, Korea, and then to the U.S., which is where I ended up in L.A. for two weeks. And um, the whole time just continuing um, to report on what was happening in Wuhan and in China. And so I holed up in Wuhan, or sorry, in LA for two weeks. Um, and then I uh, flew to Taiwan, which is where I am now. And I've been here now for about three months and um, finally just getting settled in over the next few weeks, which is um, a good feeling because I've been living, I mean, many of us have been uprooted, I think, from our normal routine. So it's, it's nice to get back into something. That is a hectic journey. I feel like that is the exact opposite of most of us who have been uh, holed away in their homes for the past um, few months. So um, glad you made it safe and that you're getting settled in, settled in there as well. Um, and Olivia, how about for you? Um, you've been in the U.S. the whole time, so maybe a slightly different experience, but you've also been here covering, well, first the um, U.S. government policies that have impacted your work um, and then also covering um, you know, Black Lives Matter and some other really big moments here in the U.S. and how, how has that gone for you? Yeah, um, yeah, so in contrast to image journalism, yeah, I have been stay put in the U.S., but I remember, like, actually in the, in February, I was actually uh, in Iowa and in New Hampshire covering the 2020 primaries, and I remember at that time, because the situation in China was really bad about coronavirus, and I remember asking state officials or, you know, people at the, uh, you know, at the, the ground and asking how, how do you think of coronavirus is like what it's like yeah. no one's you know ever it, it just no one pay attention to that and then uh came back you know when the situation in the u.s was really starting to getting worse and then the u.s president having kind of a daily briefings and short notice briefings because uh, I live really close to White House so I can make it every time uh, to the briefings at that time he he wasn't so hostile to China so I remember asking him China related questions and he actually said like you know what this coronavirus is gonna make US and China closer which you know uh, we all know and then 
then after that is, I think then the White House started to have a social distancing policy that I wasn't part of the White House pro. So I started, I don't have access anymore. So I just started covering, you know, the uh, White House briefings or uh, state responses from my apartment. And then the Black Lives Matter, you know, the protest that happens, and that's probably like the only main events that I covered on the ground since March. So that was a really interesting experience as well. And also, I, I, I think it's also kind of like um, trying to get the more nuances in that, in, the, in covering the protest instead of just, oh, it's a pure confront between the protesters and the police. And I, I remember I read a story on how there's actually a civilized conversation between protesters and the policemen. And, uh, you know, they were kneeling. It's just the kind of like a very um, dramatic or emotional moment. I don't, I wanted, you know, readers to know more nuances to that uh, story instead of just the violin. So, and then ever since I started, you know, just doing interviews at home, uh, you know, t the prospect of the 2020 elections were uh, the US-China relations related stories. So, yeah. It, just uh, talking about it, it feels like, oh, it has been, I have been through, going through a lot. Yeah, a lot of, um, not a lot of locations, but a lot of content. Exactly. Of <laughs> yeah. Staying on that for a minute, I guess my next question would be, um, I mean, you have quite a lot of responsibility and a big task in front of you trying to explain um, or kind of contextualize issues like Black Lives Matter. Um, for a Chinese audience back home, um, many of them, you know, have very little maybe personal interaction with some of these issues. Um, how do you approach that work? What do you, um, what do you prioritize? What do you focus on? Or kind of what are your tactics for explaining U.S. culture, um, especially when it comes to complicated questions like race, um, to a Chinese yeah. audience? Yeah, um, actually, because, you know, Taishin is more like a business economic focused. So I was initially... When I first came here in the U.S., I covered mainly, you know, the trade tensions and also like the tech uh, contest. But it just uh, was everything going on. It's just so hard not to cover politics or culture anymore. So it is a really complicated issue. So I like that kind of stories. It's not like a hard news it's like my personal encounter which I write I wrote in the form of like a reporter's note and I have video footage and I have pictures to show the readers what it's actually look like so it, it is complex so I just you know I feel like people here are generally open to talk to reporters I just went to on the street to talk to protesters and there are actually kind of like a lead protester asking people to talk to reporters uh, encouraging people so it's I just they want their story to be heard and I listened to their story and I read about their story so it helps me a lot to understand these issues as well. And I don't think I fully, you know, understand the issues yet, but it's just by listening, talking to them, and also talking to experts, professors, I definitely helped my personal, my personal understanding to this. And I, yeah, just that hopefully will help our readers back in China understand this as well. 
And um, do you have a sense of whether or not, like, wh what? How are your Chinese readers um, reading these pieces? What do they, you know, have a sense of what they're thinking about? Um, I I I heard from my editor. He told me like that piece about the conversation between the protester and the police. Uh, I actually got a lot of positive feedback, but um, that's. I think it. I mean. It's hard to say. I think there it, it could be a whole another conversation on this issue, you know. But I definitely think the readers who read actually read Tyson, they are more open. They're you know for this kind of uh, details and nuances behind the stories. But it could be another different group who just uh, don't think that's something they would like to listen. It's, you know, it's like here, you have people have different views. So it's really hard to say how they actually, you know, one, one view on a certain thing. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and Amy, turning to you, it must uh, be a very um, different uh, perspective hearing from people on the street kind of dying to talk to a reporter and give their comment, because I know that you've spoken a lot about how difficult it's been to do reporting in China, especially getting the kind of the voices of actual people rather than, you know, undisclosed, uh, undisclosed contacts. So do you want to kind of fill in a little bit about how you share information about China to a Western audience and um, what you prioritize? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I'm grateful to The Times for giving us more space to go out there and try to find voices on the ground. And, um, you know, I think my last two trips are a huge contrast. My, I took a trip in December to Xinjiang. I went to Hotan um, and I didn't even try to speak to anyone while I was on the ground there because I just knew that, you know, as soon as we would get out of a taxi, um, people would jump into the taxi and try to talk to the driver, even though he obviously had nothing, you know, knew nothing. Um, so, what, you know, being aware of that, we didn't talk, try to talk to anyone. We were mostly just there trying to get some sense of color and texture of the place. And I think that it really illustrates how difficult in some ways reporting in China has become on the ground. But I mentioned earlier that going to Wuhan was actually an amazing experience. And it was, and not only because it was, you know, crazy to see what was happening there on the ground um, early on in this whole pandemic, but also because people there were so actually willing to talk and really, really, really open. Um, even, you know, we kind of go, I've talked about before about how in China, you know, especially when you're a foreign media um, approaching someone, you don't advertise, you're like, I'm the New York Times. You know, if you call someone usually in the US and you say the, the New York Times, they'll call you back pretty quickly. Um, but in China, it's sort of like, I'm a reporter, I work for an American newspaper, and they start digging, and then inevitably they sort of turn away. But in Wuhan, it was not the case at all. You know, they didn't carry that. Um, we were from the New York Times. They just wanted, they were so desperate. So many of the people who we met who were at hospitals were just so desperate to tell their story and get their voice out there that actually um, they were very open to talking. But, um, you know, over the last few months, um, I've had an opportunity to try to do stories on China about what's happening in China from outside of China. It's definitely difficult, but um, actually easier than I would have expected. Um, I think, of course, there is still a lot of skepticism about foreign media, but as long as you're not talking about, you know, extremely sensitive topics, I think people are still, you know, willing to share their thoughts. And I've been pleasantly surprised about how um, that's gone. I mean, it makes me more optimistic about doing reporting on China from outside of China.
Um, well, good. Optimism is definitely something positive to be um, promoted. Um, I So I guess shifting to the readership, um, how do you try to um, make sense of China for a Western audience or an American audience particularly? Um, you know, China is now on the front page almost every day, um, not always for positive reasons from the U.S. side or the Chinese side. So, um, you know, I think as more Americans have become, I guess, more familiar with some of the key things that are happening in China and especially in the U.S.-China relationship, um, how has that changed the way that you do your job? Yeah, I think about this question a lot, what role we can play um, in this broader environment. And I think that, um, you know, I had, a, as I sort of described earlier, I got into China journalism because I did want to help bridge, you know, understanding between these two cultures that I grew up with and I'm very familiar with. And um, I think that is a big responsibility for any uh you know, non-Chinese newspaper to communicate back to their audiences back home, you know, what's going on in China. And um, I always sort of think about like people who come to visit us in China and the impression that they get from just visiting China is so different from what they read about in the papers. And I think that that's oftentimes our responsibility to try to our best to sort of present this whole picture of not just ha what's happening politically, but also what's happening, you know, culturally and socially. And it's just such a dynamic place. You know, any of us who've been there know that it's extremely different. And, you know, um, so on one hand, I think that that's an extreme, extremely important re responsibility. But on the other hand, recognizing over the years that um, as Chinese media and local media have become more constrained in what they're able to do, you know, we've seen so many journalists at, you know, like Olivia's publication at Taishin and other great um, Chinese news outlets sort of jump ship and go on to, you know, doing PR jobs and stuff, which is understandable because of the climate there. And, you know, we had this brief kind of window where we saw how incredible these journalists are. I mean, you know, Taishin did in incredible reporting during the coronavirus, what was happening in Wuhan and what was happening across the country. And um, I think that one of the editors at the publication said that they only pr published a fraction of what um, they were they got, which I think shows you how, you know, how much we're missing basically by not being able to publish, you know, have this very robust force. So I think the sort of second role that is kind of coming more into play now is also trying to, you know, journalism is to hold power to account. And I think that that's also a role that we take very seriously. So in addition to trying to present this very kind of full picture of what's happening in China to our audiences, we do, you know, have to feel like there is a sort of responsibility to, um, yeah, like to do these sort of more stories that kind of question what's happening there in terms of the power dynamics and um, what the leadership is doing there. And I think it's a constant sort of difficulty to kind of balance between the two. And lately, you know, especially not, not being on the ground now, I think the first sort of priority that I was talking about in terms of representing like the culture is just so much more difficult now because we can't be there and be talking to people. Um, staying on that topic for a minute, um, I'm sure a lot of folks in the audience have read recent um, news about the New York Times pulling a lot of stuff from their Hong Kong office and moving to Seoul. Um, I think that there would be a lot of questions about that. I don't know how much you can say, but um, I guess just what are your reflections on that news and also, I guess, just the way in which journalism in China is kind of increasingly moving to the periphery? 
Yeah, I mean, um, you know, our expulsion order, I think, like I said earlier, we were always sort of expecting something like that, not expecting something like that to happen, but it wasn't a total surprise. I do think that the fact that the order also covered Hong Kong was a surprise for us. Um, and, you know, as right now, I still don't even know what the status is and if we'd be able to go in there. But to be honest, I, I didn't know about the move until I read the New York Times article, like many of you, that we were going to Seoul. And, but I wouldn't at all see it as a retreat. I, I mean, you know, we, when you read a, a story, you see our byline, but behind our byline actually is a bunch of really, really talented and smart editors and people working, you know, behind the scenes who are helping us put stuff online. Like, I wish I could say that I wrote, you know, perfect sterling copy and that's exactly what went online but actually there's a lot of people who are helping us behind the scenes so you know just in terms of like business operations i think it sort of makes sense like if there are going to be visa issues for people um then you know it's just uh, sort of makes sense to kind of go into an environment that has more certainty um uh and clearly like things in Hong Kong are changing and are uncertain right now. So we're not at all, you know, it's not a retreat. We're not pulling any reporters. If anything, I think we're sort of doubling down on the story there. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I don't know. Um, I wasn't involved in like the top level decisions on this, but that's, I think, you know, what's happening there. Um, I'm, I'm, I wish they had consulted you, I'm sorry about <laughs> <laughs> But uh, no, I, that makes sense. And I guess just um, any thoughts that you might have related to that on the national security law and how that's going to continue to impact the reporting there um, from your perch at the New York Times. Yeah, I, I, they obviously the national security law mentions specifically strengthening um, management of media organizations there. And I think that um, like a lot of other sectors in Hong Kong right now, everyone is asking what this law means for them. And until um, there is more guidance, I think that the probably the default as it's been in a lot of sectors is to sort of um, just wait and see. And so, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't really know. I think probably that's clearly the way in which they rolled out this law. It was in intended to intimidate and to sort of um, to be a show of force. And so I think that that's what we're seeing now is, I don't know, you know, when or if we'll see more guidance. Um, I think that, you know, just from recently, I did a story about how it's affecting the education sector in Hong Kong. I think a lot of people are hoping that eventually it'll be sort of dialed back um, and won't be sort of as looming as it is now over like large parts of the population. So I think that's, my guess is probably it's the same for media operating there too. Yeah. Um, and shifting to, back to you, Olivia, um, I mean, you've also had the um, challenge of reporting on U.S. policies that are coming out that are quite harsh towards um, Chinese nationals in the U.S., um, Chinese students. Um, the recent report, I think, was from last night that the Fulbright program is also going to potentially be suspended for um, Hong Kong and China. Um, and a lot of these kind of bonds of, you know, connection between the U.S. and China eroding. And I know a lot of your readers, I'm sure, like, you know, uh, people who have benefited from these connections, uh, folks who have traveled to the U.S. or gone to school in the U.S. Um, what? How do you report these things out, and what? How do you make sense of these from the perspective of a Chinese, um, you know, uh, reporter based in the U.S.? Yeah, um, I think a, I don't know an interesting thing is that you start to write stories that actually influence yourself. So for the visa policy. Um, you know, the U.S. retaliated towards the Chinese government's uh, 
actions and make a, you know, any reporter of Chinese national, no matter who you work for, a state media, non-state media, or Western media, as long as you are holding I visa, it's you have to apply for extension every 90 days. Um, and I mean, from what I've seen is they are not trying to, um, you know, they're not trying to expile journalists. It's just that they are having this 90 day uh, duration of stay and require you to apply. So it seems to me that as long as you apply within the 90 days window and you will be able to get extension, but uh, no one had, you know, it's like, it's really new and we haven't, you know, no one has gone through the first run yet. So that's one thing. And another is like what I mentioned is because I was actually mainly focused on economic and the business side of US-China relations. But now I just found myself writing so much more like non-business related, like, you know, the visa, international student visas, um, the, uh, you know, journalist visa and other stuff. So it just, uh, what I, I have been trying to do and I think that is my, you know, responsibility is just to present, you know, our readers in China, the what's really happening in the U.S. regarding the U.S.-China relations. Uh, I try, I definitely not have, you know, present my personal opinion in my pieces. I may have my own opinion, but I try not, I try not to uh, present in my pieces and just offer balanced uh, stories, um, you know, from both sides. So it just, uh, it has been, it just uh, has been kind of hard to, you just have to, you know, detach yourself to those, it's, it's all personal stories and you talk to those international students and uh, how they're feeling and how certainty they're feeling. It just uh, felt like, you know, the past few days or few weeks, there ha there's something new coming out, like targeting at you or you, like all my friends or, you know, it's just uh, so much uncertainty. It's definitely not a, I know Amy said he felt optimistic reporting out of such, I, I kind of felt pessimistic reporting in the US right now, so yeah. That's, um, can you just unpack that a little bit? What, do you just feel like the policies are not gonna get better or do you feel like the environment for journalists um, itself is getting more constrained? Um, yeah, I think for the, you know, the US-China relations, I think it could, a lot of people could agree on this is you would see more tensions not you know i think when i first came here it seems like mainly on trade stuff and then you know expanded in tech and then it's just the seems like almost every front so you know there's great stories coming out you know about what trump administration is planning to do the visa ban on you know the party members and um a lot of you know it's just i I, yeah, personally, I don't think we're gonna see things getting better, especially with you know with this pandemic and the, the election season coming up. So it just uh, being tough on China is gonna be the main theme for this, you know, in terms of foreign policy. And for journalists in the U.S., a Chinese national, I yeah, like 
you know, like the way you you mentioned to us before, the China, uh, Chinese storyteller, there this policy just not influence Chinese state media or Chinese media in general, but also influence other media outlets. Like they're all brilliant Chinese students. They came here, came to the U.S. for journalism school, and they want to get a a job to be a journalist in the U.S. media or other media outlet, but then then they have to apply for extension every 90 days. How does that going to influence their, you know, employers? Definitely it's going to be something employer would take into consideration when trying to hire them. So it's just, a, I, I don't, I, I hate to be pessimistic, but I just don't see anything that's for me to be, uh, to be positive about. Um, for those of you who don't know, Chinese Storytellers is a really phenomenal collective of um, mostly U.S. trained um, ethnically Chinese journalists um, who are a really phenomenal group of people reporting on not only the, you know, actual content of the news between these two countries, but um, the kind of the personal narrative of how, you know, identity and politics and journalism all kind of come into um, conflict. So. I encourage everyone to subscribe to their newsletter if you haven't, because um, it's definitely worth your time to read. Um, and just one more question on that, Olivia, which is, um, you know, you work for, you work for Saixian, which is non-state media and has a reputation within China as being a very strong voice for um, kind of a progressive voice within the media space. Um, and I think less well-known in the US. Um, what, how do you feel like you're perceived as a, um, as a Chinese journalist in the American context, and how does that change kind of the stories you cover or um, the ways in which you do your job? Yeah, um, so actually I remember like I did an interview with New York Times Magazine, actually they are doing like a feature on foreign correspondent, and this is like how I summarize my situation, situation in the U.S. is um, it's always difficult to be a foreign correspondent and, you know, you, because of, you know, in terms of access, but me being a Chinese journalist just add another layer of difficulty to that. Um, I have been come across like very various incidents that whenever the, um, the people I was talking to uh, know like I'm working for a Chinese media, they just think, think like you work for state media or uh, you are not a real journalist. And I remember um, I was at a private event, like talking to a uh, junior staff of a U.S. politicians, lawmakers, and because back then I was really trying hard to reach out to politicians, even anti-China, you know, China hawk, um, trying to get a better sense of what they are thinking, uh, you know, understand to to you know to better report. Um, but but I have never heard back from them, and I would attach you know like a three months complimentary code for testing global English version and say oh if you you know you, you can see like how what we are covering and we are uh, blah 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 like introduction but like also there's something like I may go to public events uh, to you know that I may get quest a chance to ask the questions. And then I probably would write that story, include the quote, and send it to the PR, you know, press office, and say, okay, I really would like to follow on that topic. 
if you know this is the story this is the chinese story this is the english version of story but you know i never heard back so at that event it's like a personal conversation i asked him like why i never heard back and he said like because you are a chinese media no one trusts chinese media um and uh i was saying but we are like i'm not working for state media we are private media and he said um he said Huawei is a private company. No one buys it. I don't know what to say. So it just the incidents like that happens a lot. It's just a, um, I, I just really think I try really hard to try to get the other side of the story, but I wasn't that luck. So what I have been trying to do is just, you know, attend those public events for press conferences, like which is a public world and may get a chance to ask you questions. So that's, I think that has worked uh, well. And oh, and also another thing, I think it's in February or something I was at, um, I think I also mentioned that in Chinese Storyteller newsletter, that uh, that was like the HHS Secretary Azar's press conference in February, I asked him like, uh, what, yeah, I think I asked him like when, when will you know the US consider lo loosen the travel restrictions on China and also why are you still calling COVID-19 Chinese virus? Um, and then, I don't know, someone just put that part of that video on Twitter and, uh, you know, everyone's saying like, oh, she's just a propagandist or something. Um, you know, you have come across this kind of situation in private settings and I kind of just accept it. I don't take it personally, but when I took on Twitter and so many people are, you know, tweeting and trolling, it's uh, another different thing to process. So um, I did, I, I mean, I eventually come to terms with it, but uh, also what I was really glad to know, I don't know, a couple of weeks later is that a congressman, a congresswoman saw that video and she later uh, also asked the Secretary Azar, uh, mentioned my question to him and um, asking him like, will he be willing to stop calling COVID-19 Chinese virus? And he said, oh, yes, that's like, he took the question I asked uh, too hard and that wasn't intended or something. So he stopped calling uh, the coronavirus Chinese virus. So I just feel like, okay, that's probably that's worth the trolling I got uh, to kind of make a contribution to, you know, Asians or Asian Americans community in the U.S. But I maybe not help that much, but that's my tiny bit of contribution to that. So, I I mean I think I mean Amy definitely faces a lot of other challenges reporting the in China, but this is probably another different types of uh, difficulty to report in the U.S. because you know this kind of ideological differences for. But yeah, I just uh, I think it's not just the me and you know other Chinese national reporters. They're all trying their best to, to cover every member of Chinese storyteller have kept advocating for Chinese storyteller, but it's just that I feel so proud of their job and they're doing so, so good. So I just, um, yeah, I, I just have like always look up to them and uh, just the, they're so courage and to, to, to do everything they are doing. So yeah, it just, maybe that's still, that's probably part of, could be part of like optimism, optimism that I come from. That's definitely a more positive note because I think that I mean I very much understand that um, feeling of um, 
I guess it sounds like almost like stereotyping based on like the name of your organization that there's a specific, um, you know, agenda that the Chinese media must be portraying and, and Chinese storytellers again and all, I think in Amy and me, all the journalists who are out there are this huge advocate or this evidence that like, um, I think of this moment in journalism that I think, you know, has been the case for much of the previous decade or, or longer that you can be from anywhere and you can tell, you can report good stories and you can move back and forth between two places and you can train in the US and work for BBC and live in whatever in Finland. But like, um, I think what is concerning to um, a lot of folks is seeing just those windows and seeming like seemingly closing and that the, um, just the opportunities for um, diverse views on topics in US-China relations specifically are, are getting, you know, fewer. So. I mean, I think it's a testament to both of you too that you're able to be, you know, continue to do your job and to do it to such a high degree. But I think it's also, um, I know that there are a lot of folks who signed up for this event who are journalism students, and I'd be really curious um, what you would both recommend to that generation of of kind of newly trained um, people entering the field. Um, you know, I think that there's a lot of optimism, a lot of hope, and a lot of really good stories to be told. But I think, you know, realistically, I think folks are feeling a little bit pessimistic about entering the journalism space at this moment in time, especially if they're a Chinese journalist studying in the U.S. or a U.S., you know, budding journalist trying to study in China. So um, I'd be curious what you guys would say to the next generation of journalists um, who are thinking about reporting in this, in this space. Um, and maybe I can start with you, Amy. It's a good question. Uh, I think that, you know, all of the normal journalism advice, just write, get a lot of practice writing, keep on pitching, be persistent. I definitely think if you're interested in doing China journalism, writing about China in English, I think that the language is more than ever um, important. Uh, it just makes such a difference to be able to have a conversation in China and to hear the um, nuances and and you know, it's, it's such an interesting, complicated language and to be able to have like a hold, hold a full conversation with people. And also just because, you know, people are sort of um, not as open to talking to the media. And so to be able to have kind of snatches of conversation or be able to very fluently kind of approach someone, I think that that makes all the um, difference. And so I would definitely say that I've heard from correspondents now who uh, don't have the Chinese language skills, and so working in the field now is just much more um, more difficult than I think it was 10, 20 years ago. Not to say that you, you can't at all. I mean, there's incredible journalists that don't speak the language well who still do a really great job, but I just think that makes it that much easier. Um, and Olivia, what do you suggest? Um, yeah, language is definitely, I think, is very important for you to be able to have like a really real conversation with, you know, no matter where you report from. Um, and also I think probably for Chinese nationals starting journalism, it's definitely not a good time. But I mean, I still think just, the, you know, it is because so much is happening between US China right now. And there, there is that eager eagerness for, for what is really happening. There is that, um, you know, information hunger there, th that space for, for journalists to, 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 to feel. So even maybe it's not, the space is not as wide as it was before, but I mean, if you're really passionate about it and you're, 
you know, I just I feel like there will be a time. Maybe, and there's still space you can do something. And it's just the thing, it's, I, I don't think it should be less people doing journalism in US and China, but the, the opposite. So I probably not sure about like, maybe because of those like visa issues or something, maybe made it difficult, but, um, so I may not have like a practical way how you can do that. I just think that demand is definitely there. And I, I do think like, you know, transnationals doing China related uh, reporting outside of China, they can bring a unique perspective to the newsroom that maybe a lot of, uh, you know, other reporters um, may didn't, you know, ignore or, you know, didn't realize. So I just think that there is that need and um, there will be, it's just to continue doing what they are doing. Um, great. And staying on that topic of identity, um, especially, you know, the Chinese identity as being an important way to like look at the stories in a different light and vice versa. Um, I'm going to turn to one of the questions that came in through the Q&A chat. Um, and this is a good PSA for anyone who's listening and has a question to ask. You can put those in, um, if you hit the Q&A button, you can add those in and we'll um, turn to Q&A now so we can get to those. Um, but there was an anonymous question that came in here uh, for Amy talking about um, your ABC identity and how you reconcile your um, identity with the, um, the disintegration of US-China relations during this pandemic and how you kind of balance those two sides. Yeah, that's a good question. I think that um, in terms of, I th like a lot of people who have sort of mixed identities, I think your identity comes out in some situations more than others. So, you know, spending time in China, I definitely feel my American identity more. As soon as I step back into the U.S., I immediately am aware of the fact that I look Chinese and I am Chinese. Um, and I think that I've thought about this a lot. Um, and sometimes I think about how, you know, the reporting that we do is really important and uh, holds power to account. But I also think about the impact of that in the U.S. You know, I'm, I do get nervous when my mom, at least in like the earlier months, was going out with a mask in, um, to Costco. And I just don't want her to be discriminated against. I don't, you know, I, 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 I feel conflicted about that. And I think where I've landed on that is we should be continuing to do and what we are is investing in you know, reporting on China the way that we see it, but also I think that it's um, incumbent upon, you know, U.S. media organizations or um, to report on communities in the U.S. also in a more fully realized way. Um, I know that we have seen a lot of reports recently about, you know, attacks and discrimination against Asian Americans in the U.S. during this pandemic, and that's so disheartening to see, and I think it's important to report on that, but also when it's not during the pandemic, we should be reporting on these communities anyway from other perspectives too. Um, I just think about, you know, in January, I was home for Chinese New Year right before I went to Wuhan and people were already social distancing then. And if we had been covering, you know, these communities and paying attention to um, what was happening among like the Chinese immigrant population in the US, like we would have known that I knew this because I knew I was going to probably go to Wuhan, that hand sanitizer was sold out in January, that masks were getting sold out, that people were social distancing. Like, this was happening months before anything was happening, you know, this sort of rose to our consciousness. So um, that's what I think we, I would hope to see is just sort of uh, more coverage of uh, these sorts of communities in the U.S. to kind of balance out um, what I guess people see as negative coverage that's happening um, on this side of the world. 
great, really, really interesting. And how about you, Olivia? Do you feel like, um, maybe asking the question slightly differently, but I guess after living in the US for a number of years, um, what do you hope that Chinese audiences would understand um, about the US that they might not get from their kind of regular media diet? I think it's kind of similar is like, you know, we all talk about, you know, when the US-China relation is getting worse, the people-to-people -people communicational exchange is really important. So I just think like, um, you know, there's increasing nationalism on both sides, especially if you see on both the social media on Twitter or Weibo. So I just, I, I want, you know, it's like not just the, when see any when they say like American people, they're not like a representing the government. They're just the human beings and they're trying, you know, is a, like everyone else. And especially like during this pandemic, it's the situation, if the situation in the US is not getting better, it's not, the world is not going to, going back to normal. It's like, it's, we are living in such an interconnected world. So it's not a, there may be policies coming from both governments that are hostile, but you know, the people to people side shouldn't be hostile. And um, I think there's one thing um, the U.S. government, I think you've heard, you know, talking points about how they distinguish Chinese government to Chinese people. But I think what U.S. government is doing is they didn't reflect what they're talking about because what the policies they are having, what they're hurting is Chinese people, Chinese students, Chinese scholars or Chinese tourists or it just it doesn't reflect in their actions. So it's just a I think it's on both sides, you know, like it's it's just that so much, should be so much more nuances in it and uh, shouldn't be just uh, that, um, you know, cookie cutter approach on both sides. Um, building off of that, there's a question from um, Bridget Donovan, who's on staff at the National Committee, um, which I think gets to some of those other sides of this question. So I'm curious to ask and hear what you guys think. Um, when she asks, when you submit your draft copy to editors, do you get the sense that the published article, um, the tone or nuance has been changed um, consistently in any particular way, um, harsher, more hyperbolic, or softer tone even? Um, and I guess in the context of what, maybe framing that a little bit of like, kind of what do you think readers are looking for? Um, or do you write for what readers are looking for? Because I think especially now when there's so much more um, information in both countries about, um, you know, the downturn in the relationship and harsher stances on both sides, um, do you get a sense that that's kind of shaping the way story, the stories are told as well? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, when I turn in, uh, most, most of my editing is done, uh, most of the, my work is edited by people out here in Asia who have had a ton of experience reporting in China. My direct editor speaks Chinese and reported in China for many years. So I think that we go into conversations about stories uh, with good faith because I know that she knows the story well, she knows that I know the story well, and we can sort of work from there. And it just, it does, I think, become much sharper and more nuanced. Um, and I'm really, you know, grateful for that kind of editing because I know that that isn't necessarily the case with everyone. I was just having a conversation with someone yesterday who said that um, 
feels like he has to d dumb it down for his editors back in his home uh, office. So, um, yeah, and when I think about the readers, of course, you know, I've been told that sometimes I write to maybe it's too, too inside baseball, like I maybe I'm writing for like national community type people and I should be thinking more about <laughs> readers in the US, but it's difficult, you know, we're trying to be an international newspaper, we are an international newspaper. And so um, I think that it, it's uh, difficult to sort of strike that balance, but there is a way to kind of um, tell a story from a sort of broad kind of perspective that can bring in readers who are maybe not necessarily totally familiar with the topic of China, but that still is interesting. And I think that it's just a matter of kind of um, uh, writing kind of more, um, it just, it's, it, it really depends, it comes down to the writing. You just have to write in a very sort of tight, um, but also, you know, use good word choice and stuff. And so I'm grateful, very grateful to my editors. <laughs> they make me sound a lot better than probably I am on my own. Um, and how about you, Olivia? Mm, I I think I definitely think about my readers when I read story, but that doesn't necessarily mean like I would uh, you know tweak or something the story I wrote. Uh, it's I, th I I think I always think about like okay I always think about you know I think it's a, the my editor talk about as well like people's right to be informed. So I was just uh, think they have, even though something bad happens in the U.S., they have the right to know. And uh, I just uh, write in the way that concise and uh, really, you know, let them know what's really happening. That's just uh, really my first uh, and the, the biggest efforts when I write a story. And, you know, from like George of the Newsworthy and importance, not, I mean, I think I, my editors at Taishin, they don't really care their, the you know the clicks is not their first uh, you know first uh, consideration when it comes to a report a story right so it's just the uh, what I mean they are just like the best uh, editors I could have uh, ever asked for and uh, I constantly even I've been with Tyson for four and a half years and constantly be you know, surprised, not surprised, but like always admire their judgment in, you know, different stories that have been so experienced in covering all those kind of stories. So it's just, a, yeah, it's like we, of course, think about like the viewers, readers, but not in the way, you know, to tweak your story, but just the, what matters to them. Even I'm here, like there's so much stories, so many report, stories. But I can't report, I'm just uh, by myself, I can't report everything. So I, you have to pick like what stories matter to your readers most and then report. So I think it's probably more of like, uh, you know, the stories, the angles, the perspectives that you are choosing when, when it comes to, you know, readers. Mm -hmm. um, related to that, there's a question here from Kevin O'Brien, who's one of Amy's Berkeley teachers. Who's oh. to watch. <laughs> Hi, <laughs> Professor. <laughs> um, so he was asking about um, fake news and how that's been kind of commonly tossed around in the U.S. and how that's affected um, being a U.S. foreign correspondent writing in China. Um, and I would add on to that a kind of further question for both of you is just how do you vet your sources and how do you make sure that what you're reporting is really um, backed up, especially when... Um, you know, it's hard to get people, I think, on both administrations, China and the U.S., to comment on the record and to be really forthright about what's going on. So um, what uh, what tactics do you guys have? 
When I was talking earlier about how I had really amazing faculty at UC Berkeley, Professor O'Brien was literally at the top of my list. So um, yeah, thank you for the question. I'm a little bit embarrassed now. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that fake news is uh, such a huge issue. Um, there was this great New Yorker article about College Daily, the WeChat account in um, uh, that sort of is has no qualms about basically making up news in order to get clicks and um i think that you know the other i did you know have my mom is totally in this wechat ecosystem and i kind of see the result of that all the time when she tells me that like tom cruise is moving to our you know suburban town i'm like no he's not <laughs> um and this just it gets reflected back all the time when i'm speaking to people in china they sort of um you spend do spend you find that you spend a lot of your time in interviews more and more now kind of batting down uh reports about you know what's happening with black lives matter what's happening in hong kong and as much as you try to kind of push back they don't always believe you and so i think it's um it's a it's a really big issue i don't really to be honest know how to deal with it um but yeah, it's, it's it's really bad. What What's the second part of the question again? Just kind of your own process for making sure what you're reporting is vetted. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, uh, part of the, we're very rigorous with fact checking and especially when we're um, reporting something that's source based that, uh, that we have to make sure that we go out and try to get it confirmed with other sources as much as possible. Um, you know, we've definitely seen that, of course, and in a lot of DC reporting that you, it's very, when you're working with anonymous sources that it, they, people have different kinds of motivations. And so you want to just sort of try to triangulate as much as possible to make sure that what you're reporting is actually factually accurate. I think in China, um, you rely a lot of, a lot on kind of background conversations with people. Um, you know, especially in the last few years, we have found that it's become more difficult. Like people who are willing to speak on the record before will only speak on background and people who are willing to speak before on, on background don't talk at all. And, you know, it, it's become in very difficult actually to um, even just interview Chinese professors and experts on different subject matters just to get commentary. Um, a lot of them now refer you to a black hole of a sort of PR in their institution and you never hear back from them. And so, you know, I wish we could include more of these voices in our reports, um, but you have to rely, I, we think we rely a lot more on just sort of having these conversations oftentimes in person when we were there, but now kind of over the phone where, you know, there you can get them to sort of help inform your broader understanding of a thing and then kind of, I guess, go to like outside voices to just sort of have that um, in your story. Great. And, and Olivia, how about you? Um, yeah, I think I actually yeah, I mean, I've, I've talked about like how the difficulty to speak. I, I don't think I would ever get off the even off the record um, conversation with you know officials. Um, so for that part, I would just rely on public information, what they have said in a public event or you know press conferences. And what I had also trying to do is you know talk to people that you know who have connections with you know the government and trying to hear from their perspective of what is actually going on or, you know, former Trump administration officials who are probably now working at a lobby firm or something, they, those are people who are willing to talk to me um, to get like a full sense of, you know, what's actually they are thinking about. And that, I think I, 
I don't I, I, I don't think I actually read ever read a story just based on sources. So that probably easier for me to know about. It probably just maybe I, I have heard of this kind of this might be happening, but I'll just uh, wait until like it is official and then I'll publish. But so that's probably that's an easier part for me to 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 you know to distinguish like to make sure that what I publish is already the news. Um, and a question from um, an anonymous attendee for Amy, but I'm going to ask to both of you guys is, um, what has been one of your, some of your most memorable or unique reporting experiences in China or the US? Um, I think you both have described um, all the rigor and detail you do when you do um, maybe more traditional stories, but has there anything that's led you off into uh, weird uh, areas or different um, stories that might be um, a little bit more um, unique? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, last year, for example, we did a story, you know, China has um, a huge gender imbalance because of the one-child policy and the preference for sons. And so we were looking into this story. My colleague in Pakistan had found a woman who, a Pakistani woman who had been basically sold as a bride to a um, Chinese man in a small village in Shandong. And so he had her side of the story and had his um, ID information and I, it, you know, they, they were like, can you go try to find this guy? So, you know, I end up in this tiny village in like random Shandong and just, you know, looking for this guy who like, as I'm talking to the, these people in the village, they're very skeptical of me um, and my colleague. Um, they had sort of, you know, didn't really want to introduce us to this person. They, they didn't really know we were there. We were just sort of looking for them at first. And then I think um, they thought that we were potentially brides for this man and so they eventually actually did tell him that um we were there and so he came by to kind of check us out first to see what we looked like and i was like oh my god but this is okay because this is like you know how we're gonna interview him so when we eventually did uh, he picked us up in um his little like three-wheel flatbed truck and then so we rode over to his home and Shandong people you know this is the home of Confucius they're very polite and so even if they don't want to talk to you they, they feel like they have to talk to you um so we kind of took advantage of this sort of Confucius uh you know politeness to uh, ask him more about what had happened with his um, Pakistani bride and we we learned <laughs> we learned a lot more through that it didn't end well obviously she ended up back in Pakistan but um, I think, yeah, the moment where I realized that I was possibly being considered as a suitor for this um, divorcee in this random village in Chandong, I was like, oh, my job is pretty cool. But <laughs> there's always an exit strategy. Now you know. Yeah. <laughs> <doesn't> work out. <laughs> um, how about you, Olivia? Have you been sold as a bride to any of your contacts in the US, or is that still on the list? <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah. Actually, I, when you asked about that, actually, my first uh, um, the first story that came to my mind is um, the story actually I did when I was in China. I was I was my first year at Taishin was actually working for uh, the video department. I was working as a video journalist, and I went to yeah, those two like one areas like I wanted to you know like the tele telecom fraud. Like, is it like there are several uh, cases on that, and you know, like they're um, really targeted those kind of uh, text messages to a uh, high school girl like, who just, uh, you know, uh, 
took the college entrance exam and was saying like, oh, you have got this uh, scholarship, but you should first uh, have that kind of uh, give them like some money to be able to get the scholarship. And uh, she believed it and uh, she sent all the money to that. Of course, it's a fraud. And uh, she just ended up like um, maybe had a heart attack or something and it was dead. So that was like a very big deal. Uh, draws a lot of attention in China. And then I was in that, went to the rural area of Fujian, which was called the Fraud Village, where, you know, like we, it's kind of like probably like what Amy experienced in China as well. Like when you're trying to do some story in the local area of China, you know, the local officials are trying to stop you. I remember like the, I was with, a, you know, my cameraman colleague and they were trying to, um, you know, make us stay in the office and have tea, you know, Fujian is famous for tea. So keep asking us to have tea and uh, uh, to try to keep us in the office instead of like going outside to interview people. But we just, yeah, it's just uh, kind of like that um, battle. So I just, I think they were closely monitoring us and we, ha I did like a live for 30 minutes on Taishin's website. I think they were closely monitoring us and even before I went on live, they saw a pre-established link. I don't know how they find it, but they find it and ask me, oh, are you going to do a live? And just, uh, you know, just all those kind of uh, navigation with local uh, officials. And that was really interesting. And I also think like this is definitely not somewhere I would be if I'm not a journalist. So this is kind of this kind of experience that makes this job interesting, I guess. Um, and relatedly, what uh, stories are you eager to report on? Something you haven't reported on yet that has like always interested you or you think that might be um, like your white whale or something that's kind of uh, on your list for future reporting? Uh, well, it might be difficult now because I'm not in China and I guess I'm just gonna give the story, but everyone knows. I know it's no secret that I'm a huge fan of Law Grandma and I have always wanted, she's the um, woman on the um, chili oil that you know many of us are familiar with. She's made my life much better, especially over the last few months. And um, I've always wanted to do a profile of her, but she is extremely elusive and I have tried every possible way basically over the last three years to try to get in touch with her and she just won't take my interview. So if anyone of you know her, tell her that I'm looking. <laughs> I would love to chat with her. She's just such an iconic woman, I think, in China and in the diaspora. So, yeah. Okay, so listener line, if anyone has their contact info, you know where to send it. <laughs> How about you? Yeah, I mean, logama is like my ingredient whenever I do like self-cooked uh, fried noodles. That's definitely like, it's probably like ingredient for everything, like whenever I live abroad. Live abroad. So definitely, I would definitely read that story if you wrote about it. Um, so I think, um, yeah, I think the, the thing just that came to my mind is just that, you know, I have been in the U.S. for two and a half years and I have been thinking, oh, I finally had a chance to cover the general election, but then everything's moving virtual and I just got email from DNC that um, they are not going to allow me in person. Of course, they are limiting the press, uh, you know, journalists in, in the convention. So that's, yeah, I mean, you can still cover it, you know, they will provide footage and everything. It's just another like a full experience of covering the convention and talking to 
uh, you know, supporters or campaign managers. So it's that probably, yeah, I wouldn't be able to have that for experience this year, which is, yeah, like a shame. Um, looking forward, I guess, more hopefully optimistically at maybe how some of these ways in the U.S.-China relationship, um, the journalism can maybe be kind of moved back out of the political sphere. Um, we have a question here from Steve Orleans, who's the president of the committee, um, asking um, if there's any chance that the U.S. and China will agree to allow other journalists back into each other's countries, um, a reciprocal return to the status quo. And I guess for both of you, do you see, how would that work? Do you think that's going to be on the table anytime soon? Um, and if so, kind of what would we look for? Yeah, I mean, I don't know um, what is happening in these discussions at all, but I could see a, I could definitely see a scenario in which um, if, you know, Biden was elected, that a sort of very easy kind of show of goodwill um, between the two would be to just grant a few visas. I mean, the mechanisms are already in place and it wouldn't require a lot of work on either side. And I don't think that a lot would be lost. Um, but I don't think that it, on the other hand, you know, I think it would be naive to say that um, even though we were ostensibly sort of being expelled for this because of this tit for tat thing, you know, we it's not no secret that I think China has been uh, very annoyed with the presence of foreign correspondents within the country for a long time and has maybe maybe been looking for a reason to get rid of some of us. And so um, I wouldn't I don't necessarily expect a kind of full restoration of visas, but I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, eventually they do let a few back in. Um, Anything to add, Olivia? Yeah, I, I, I think I kind of think like because, you know, there are some like uh, uh, policies from the US government side that just targeting Chinese nationals. I am actually not quite sure about, you know, people say like it's easier to impose those restrictions, but it's not so easy to, uh, you know, reverse it. So I just thinking like maybe with those kind of anti-China sentiment, maybe that wouldn't be, you know, even Biden is elected, that wouldn't be his, you know, priority to reverse that. So it could happen, but probably not like very soon, that's my guess. What would a kind of a return to normal ideally look like for you guys? Um, would it be a return to status quo? Um, I guess how things were six months ago or uh, would what could be done in both countries to make the environment richer for, or more productive, I guess, for uh, foreign correspondents? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that going going back, letting more of us back on the ground, I think would be a really great start. And, you know, um, it's interesting to hear the stories of foreign correspondents who were in China even 20, 30 years ago, because they did have to get permission even just to leave the city. And that's not the case now, which is great. So I think going back to, um, I, you know, I, I almost get the sense that it's, it's just, it's China's conservatism almost in a way. Um, it, it, acts as if it has something to hide. But I actually think that there are a lot of things that if they just sort of let people go in and kind of ask questions, we would find that it's not there's it's not as nefarious as it maybe seems from the outside. And so I do think it, that it is certainly to, at least um, in my context, China's benefit to 
allow foreign correspondents to go in. And, you know, a lot of the people um, are called my colleagues who were at the New York Times, but also the Journal and Post who were kicked out are people who have spent many, 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 many years um, dedicated to studying China, learning about the language, learning the culture, and uh, frankly, like, love China and really love being there and love talking to the people and meeting the people. So I do think that it's a huge loss for um, us not to be there anymore, not just for us personally, of course, but also for just kind of China um, in terms of the kind of story that are told to uh, an outside audience. Yeah, um, I think for me, it's I just hope that um, I could get more access to, you know, the U.S. government officials. But I mean, I don't, I can't complain because I also heard a complaint from U.S. reporters on that front too. So, it, but I mean, whenever there is probably a briefing limited, you know, briefing limited to certain group of reporters, that's definitely, I wasn't included. And the most of the time, uh, you know, when Chinese officials visiting, I wasn't included either. So I just uh, kind of felt like I'm stuck in the middle uh, without access to both sides. Um, so that's one thing. And another thing in terms of visa, um, I, you know, like actually the I visa is like different policies to people uh, of different nationalities. So say for a British national, the I visa is five years multi-entry. But before this visa restriction, the I visa for Chinese national is already like single entrance, but you can state duration of uh, status, like means like as long as you're employed by your the same employ employer, you can stay indefinitely. But once you leave the country, you have to reapply again. So in terms of visa, I think the idea is definitely, you know, five-year multi-entry. It's just to make it so easy for us to travel outside of US, say Canada, um, you know, when the Huawei's case was going on in Canada, you can go there and reporting and uh, come back to the U.S. without having to apply for a visa again. So that is something like I, the ideal situation, I would say. Um, and I guess a question on that, Olivia, is um, kind of following up on some, there's a few questions that I'm going to kind of combine here about um, Saixian and um, somebody asked a question about um, how uh, they wish that there was, and this is from Jacqueline Chang, um, uh, talking about how she wishes that there was a diversity of just kind of um, differentiation, I guess, between the media in China um, and have a sense of what the kind of, she said the varying biases are for different, like left, right, and center for Chinese news organizations. Um, and I know Saixian, um, a couple other questions, we're talking about the readership in the US, which I know is not quite as high as, it is in China, I'm sure. Uh, I wonder what that looks like for one. Um, and then also for both of you, that your um, key readership is up, is not in country. Um, Amy, for New York Times, obviously, because it's locked in China, um, but you do have the Chinese language um, reporting and kind of talking maybe those dynamics of how that changes the way that you tell stories. And for Olivia as well, um, you do English and Chinese language reporting. Um, and I assume it would be a higher readership within China. So kind of how do you um, balance those considerations of who's reading your work and where they're based and if that maybe holds you to different standards in terms of when you report in English for American audiences and Amy when you write in Chinese for presumably Chinese readers kind of what that you know kind of how you consider those topics. 
and then also, I'm sorry, also getting back to Jacqueline's question, because I don't want to forget that also then a little bit for you, Olivia, about the different, um, uh, just like the landscape for media within China. Yeah, um, I think uh, for Taishin, yeah, we have both English and Chinese, but it's, I, I mean, I mainly report in Chinese, but when, it, when it's the story kind of related to US-China or something like my colleagues in the English team would be interested in, think like, you know, a foreign audience would be interesting, so they would rewrite or, you know, translate that stories. And I personally also write story of two versions sometimes. I remember uh, I wrote the story on, you know, it's kind of a couple of months ago before all those tech, TikTok, WeChat banning conversation was going. And I wrote a story about like how Chinese tech companies are lobbying in DC. Um, just, uh, you know, based on the public data, like how much money they spend, it's all like public, public information. And I also explain a lot about, you know, the background information about like the what's lobby is like and it's it's like it's legal here and it, what's the basis for that and blah 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 but i also wrote an english version of that which of course i didn't you know introduce what lobby is but i would include more uh stuff on you know the future trend or something it's just like yeah it's like i did like have different considerations when i write uh, stories on different languages and in terms of a readership I actually don't know. I think actually, the the Chinese version, Chinese um, service is definitely. I don't have the numbers, but I think it's the English side. I heard like whenever I met someone like you know China Watch or something, I think they are like a subscriber, and some may even complain about like uh, it is expensive to uh, you know subscription. Uh, I did uh, give the feedback to back to the. Um, director of English service, but I, I actually think they're doing well in English too. I don't, I just don't have the numbers. Um, and about the media landscape, I just think like, you know, uh, like Amy was talking about, there are so many um, Chinese media that are doing really great job at the beginning of this pandemic reporting like independent ones, uh, not just Taishin, like Yitzhai or Sanlian, uh, it just, uh, it's, uh, I think it's just if you wanted to look for, you know, three more uh, Chinese media, then those are like those options for, you know, people who can read Chinese and wanted to know a Chinese media's perspective. And how about you, Amy? Yeah, I mean, about the readers not being, um, our readers not really being in China. I mean, it's difficult. We do get stats for our stories and we can see, but I think because a lot of, if readers come in, they often come in because of VPNs. And so it doesn't sort of show, you know, readers that come in on VPNs from China. So we don't actually really know. But regardless, um, I think that I definitely, uh, I don't think it changes, honestly, my writing too much um, because First of all, we have a great Chinese website. Most of our content, um, especially about China, is translated into Chinese. And even if people can't access that site because it's blocked in China, there are always ways to get go. Like people, you know, send around PDFs, they send or send around screenshots. Though I have noticed that it, it, I always try to post screenshots of some of you know, my stories on WeChat. Though it's become more and more difficult. Um, the WeChat sensors have 
become very, very good. I mean, I now have my last one. I tried to um, did an obituary of a of a photographer of a um, from the Cultural Revolution, and I tried to screenshot it and I turned it around and then I like drew on it and I <laughs> I posted it on the WeChat and the censors still got it. So. I, I, you know, sometimes I sort of give up, but I assume, you know, certainly if I'm interviewing someone that I would try to send them the story afterwards and um, do a kind of, uh, you know, they've sort of made the time for me to talk to me. And so I, of course, want to send it back to them. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when I, I, I do also think of a lot about my readers in the U.S. And uh, one time I got a piece of advice from an editor that was like, you know, instead of writing like super inside baseball stories, you should think about um, subjects that people already know about China. Like, uh, I mean, he said chopsticks and pandas, but I mean, I, I, obviously there's like more than that, but then just try to like twist it a little bit and to sort of offer a new angle on that. And so more recently, for example, um, well, I'm personally a dog owner and dog lover, but I had been sent a few years ago to report on the Yulin Dog Meat Festival, which is of perennial interest in the U.S. And I mean, very frustratingly, because people are always, you know, making this assumption about Chinese people eating dog meat. And so because I have sort of gotten so many questions about that over the years, I wanted to revisit the topic um, this year. And I think it's a really actually interesting lens into uh, how um, I, I'm always trying to sort of break down this kind of monolith of like China, like the party, even within the party, there's different levels of the party within the government, there's the local governments, and then there's central government. And I thought that there's, you know, there's people who are in tension with the party. And I thought this dog meat um, article actually really brought to light, like how it was something that it was a policy that Beijing was trying to push through um, to ban dog meat or to discourage people from eating it. But then you had pushback from kind of local governments and also local people in these certain areas that were like, well, Beijing, you're super far away. So like, we don't really care what you think. Um, and so, you know, I thought that story kind of helped show these sorts of tensions that to an American reader who maybe is just drawn into the story because they love reading about Chinese people eating dog meat, but then actually realize that one, like not only is that not true, but two, it's like there's a lot of different opinions on this subject. And um, I feel like they, hopefully they would walk away from reading a story like that with an under, like a better understanding of how the system in China is not just this one top-down kind of unified system, but actually has a lot of tensions within the system. Um, and also tensions between people and also the system too. So those are just sorts of some of the considerations that I have when I'm thinking about my readers and what I'm, how I'm writing. Yeah, that's um, I think super helpful. I think so many um, of you know people who live in China kind of see every day the micro ways in which the kind of the frictions between the different structures um, rub against each other. Whether or not you like see a sign for one thing and people are doing the exact opposite somewhere else. Um, and then again, that's also true here where, you know, there's things happening at various levels all the time. That's not, not always captured in um, kind of a headline story. Um, we only have a few minutes left. So I'm going to ask a final question um, to the both of you before we um, close down. And um, I do want to just say a note to the audience for those who have really a huge number who've submitted questions. I'm really sorry that we're not going to be able to get to all of them. Uh, we need, um, a lot more hours to cover all of the amazing and interesting questions as well as the content that's happening in US and China right now. Um, but one last question is um, from an anonymous attendee, but um, to um, avoid the hostility at a people to people level, is there anything that readers and the general public can do to educate themselves about the other side in the current US China relations climate? 
So I guess for both of you, and um, Amy, that kind of brought to mind the story, you, um, the kind of the connection between the dog meat story is, you know, and trying to add texture there. Um, how do you think readers can kind of go beyond the, I don't know, I guess the stereotypes or the, the kind of maybe the first glance reading of the other country and really um, dig into what, you know, the other country really has to offer? Yeah, I mean, I think that especially compared to, um, you know, when I was growing up in the Bay Area uh, in, whatever, in the 90s, um, you know, now I've, it's been really incredible to see how much content there is in English um, about, about China that's written by not just sort of major news outlets, but also just kind of voices that we wouldn't have necessarily seen before. Maybe I wasn't looking for it before, so I can't say that it's new. But, um, you know, we've talked about Chinese storytellers a lot in this um, <laughs> panel, but I will just add my own personal plug for it. I think that they do an amazing job at um, bringing out these personal stories about of like really incredible um, Chinese journalists and, you know, uh, academics and whatnot. And so I would really encourage everyone to basically just look for these like types, these, these pockets that um, are offer these kinds of personal perspectives and the kind of individual perspectives that I think are really needed in, because, you know, as we're seeing Fulbright being, being pulled or seeing, you know, Peace Corps also being pulled, like these human to human kind of understandings, I think are more important than ever. There's Chinese storytellers, there's of course Taishin, there's new voices. Um, I wrote a re article about a year or two ago about Gusha FM and the various kind of rise of Chinese podcasting. So if you can speak Chinese language, I would highly encourage you to subscribe to podcasts like that, in particular Gusha FM is sort of like a Chinese this American life and you almost feel like you're in a confessional like room with these people who are telling you their individual stories that are just crazy. Um, Yang Yang Chen is an incredible um, new voice on the scene who writes about the intersection of China and America and science. Um, she writes with such nuance and just incredible insight. I would highly recommend her. Um, in Hong Kong recently, I've really been enjoying the write, the work of um, Karen Chung. You should definitely look her up too. And there's just so many great young and um, people writing about their own personal experiences. I think the more that we can share these kinds of human stories, I think the better it is to kind of keep this understanding going. Couldn't agree more. Um, Olivia, any final thoughts on this topic? Yeah, I feel like Amy has already mentioned all the stuff I could have mentioned. Um, also, I think I, I, I'm, I've been like, a, Amy, I mentioned Kai Sogo. I have been like a really big fan of Sub China podcast. I it just I think it's uh you know that is English language and really worth listening on different variety of China related topics and also another on for Mandarin speakers on the culture side is um also this is a podcast called Loud Murmurs by one of the you know founding members of Chinese storyteller it's Mandarin, but it's on like U.S. pop culture and more deeper discussions. I have been huge fan of this podcast as well. So it's just the, all that kind of uh, discussions. You can hear like the Chinese people, uh, Chinese uh, perspective on you know U.S. culture and more society uh, issues. So that's something I could add up. Great. Um, well, again, um, for the National Committee and the uh, Young China Professionals Program, um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It was a really fascinating conversation. Um, definitely left me with a lot to think about, and I, and I hope for the attendees who joined as well. So 
um, with that, I'll let Amy get back to her unpacking in Taiwan <laughs> and get Olivia, get back, uh, close down for the night on your side. I can see it's getting dark around you. Yeah, so. I know. <laughs> it's like it's getting dark, you know, it's uh, close to the night. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us. We really appreciate it um, and hope you have a nice rest of your day and evening. Great. Thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye, everyone. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.